Pastor Theron mentioned, we're diving into the book of Titus and, and then from there into Judges. And you have a, a sermon note notebook. Hopefully, they'll take you through both uh, those studies. But Titus is centering around the idea of being a healthy church. And this morning, the idea of biblical commitment that we'll see uh, from Paul's salutation, his introduction uh, to the letter that he has here. I was writing some things down and I noticed. Uh, in the last few years, and it might be more than that, really, uh, there's an emphasis on getting a physical or medical checkup each year. And you might be looking at me like I'm, I'm a crazy. Why haven't I realized this a lot earlier? Uh, it seems that insurance companies, and this always catches my attention, are, are so interested in this that they will give you a discount when you go to the doctor for a checkup, which made me think, why do I keep avoiding mine? And I realized, because uh, I'm thinking, why not go in, get your checkup, and save money? The HR person at the company even says, hey, Kenny, go in, get a checkup, and they'll give you money back. You'll, you'll save money. And I came up with my answer, which, of course, is I don't want to find out how unhealthy I am. I'm not interested in knowing what's wrong. I neglect the checkup so that I stay in the dark on what's wrong which is, as we know, a very dangerous and foolish health decision. It's important to find out if anything is wrong and take corrective measures to get it right. Otherwise, a small problem grows to a massive one. It is important to be healthy. The church, as Christ's body, must be healthy as well. It must put itself through the checkup of Scripture and be certain that it functions as God designed it, because as Jesus states in Matthew 16, 18, saying to Peter, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are his church, and we are promised his strength. We're promised his ability to withstand, but that is for a church that functions, that behaves as he directs, a church that is healthy. However, no church need to wonder what it means to be healthy, as God has made that clear in his word. And the letter to Titus tells us clearly what it means to be his healthy church. So as we walk through Titus, centered in our mind is the idea of what it means to be a healthy church. What is Paul telling Titus as he goes to these churches on the island of Crete, as he establishes them uh, to be healthy churches glorifying him. Now, the book of Titus, the letter is a direct business-like letter that comes with a sense of urgency. There's an urgency every church should feel to be healthy, and I'll use this word interchangeably, to be biblical, and it is also filled with commands. It is a letter to prepare churches to be more effective witnesses, proclaimers of truth to their communities. And, and obviously the, the letter to Titus is dealing specifically with an island of Crete and it's dealing with that community. But the, the letter as a whole is telling all of us through all the ages how we are supposed to be the church that proclaims his witness into our communities. As one writer notes, it is a manual on how life should function in a local church for the glory of God and his purpose. But just because it's a manual for how a healthy church should function, does not mean that there's no theological depth. Because to be a healthy church, you must have true biblical theology. A healthy church must be grounded 
in God's word, in his doctrine. And so throughout Titus, you will find that emphasized. Uh, we'll see the glory of salvation in Christ, Titus 3.5, encounter one of the most direct references to Jesus being God. He just says it bluntly, Titus 2.13. And throughout the letter, we're going to be prodded to live out our theology to display Christian ethics. Uh, the letter, though filled with practical guidelines for functioning here on earth, does not neglect Christ's second coming, the Holy Spirit, and salvation by grace alone. It is a short letter. It's succinct and direct, but it's filled with necessary instruction on how we, his church, are to function in our world as his ambassadors. As you look at the letter of Titus, it is a manual on how we today function in our culture, our world, to be what we've been called to be, and that's his light. We're called to represent him. That is what we're supposed to do. And so the manual begins with Paul's greeting. If you read any letter from Paul, there's always a greeting. There's always a salutation. It's a greeting, though, that shows biblical commitment, specifically of leadership. But it's a greeting that sets the tone and focus of the letter. It gives the characteristics of a healthy church as exemplified in Paul's life. So as we look at what Paul is saying, we're seeing some basic characteristics that a healthy church will have. And as is often the case, Paul makes clear that he, and by attachment, we should be God's person. It's the first part of verse one. And he makes it very clear, be identified in Christ, be committed to his mastery. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and I know if you're reading through scripture, it's oftentimes easy to breeze over that first phrase. It seems like Paul's saying hi, and we're moving on. But oftentimes by missing what he's saying, we, we pass over what is critical. And Paul emphasizes this almost in every letter he writes, but you are to be God's person. You're to be identified in Christ. Your identity is centered and connected to him. You don't have an identity apart from him and you're committed to his mastery. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul could have led with human credentials. He was a highly educated Jewish leader, learned in Greek literature and philosophy, a Roman citizen by birth. He was called by Christ directly with equal privilege and authority to the disciples who walked on earth with Christ. He was given a glimpse of paradise. If Paul wanted to lead off to impress a church, trained in Judaism beyond measure, would be considered the elite of the elite. This church is going to struggle with Judaizers, with the circumcision party. So he could have set a very clear precedent of his authority. And in the religion of the day, they would respect your training above all else. He could have led with how he was called to Christ. The road uh, to Damascus knocked from his ride, so to speak, spoken to directly by both a risen and ascended Lord, but that's not how he leads off. Instead, he identified as God's slave. And, and don't miss the weight of that word, and I've shared it before, but the word that's translated servant is in Greek, the most servile person in the culture of the day. To put it in perspective, he is the lowest man on the totem pole. Nothing could be lower 
than what Paul is saying he is. I am at the bottom, he says. He identifies as one in complete yet willing bondage to God. I am at the bottom. I am completely nothing. Instead of saying, I have this education and that education and I have this training and I've been called specifically and specially by God, uh, most of us are not knocked off our ride and spoken to directly by Jesus Christ with a bright light. None of that is mentioned. He says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to God. I am there. He made clear that he was under divine authority and that authority was God's authority. He had no authority of his own. And that's what's emphasized. I'm a slave of God. I carry no weight. I personally am not the voice. The only thing I do is what my master tells me to do. Everything is subservient to God. He worked exclusively under the authority of his master, through whom he was called to be an apostle. And the word apostle is a messenger. And, and, and it's important. Sometimes we read that and we start thinking of this apostle, that apostle, and neglect the word itself. The word itself means a messenger sent out under the authority and direction of someone else. And he tells you who that is. So he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am a messenger set out under the authority of Jesus Christ and speaking a message from him. Paul made clear that the message he preached did not derive its authority from himself. Instead, the authority of the message was vested in the sender, Jesus Christ. And you have to understand, he's making very clear that he's God's person. He's not pretending to be a doormat. He's not pretending that he's not speaking with authority, but he makes sure the church understands, I'm a slave. Nothing that I do or have done is of my own. It's not mine to claim. I'm not looking for status for because of who I am. And on top of that, I speak with the authority of the person who sent me, and that is Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't negate his authority. He negates that it is his own. He speaks from Christ. Paul was deeply aware that he was under divine authority and that his call and commission was the controlling component of his life. He's not after personal fame or wealth. He was not here to accomplish a personal agenda. Instead, he was God's person, identifying wholeheartedly to his belonging to him and then Christ's role for him. A healthy church has leaders, and, and I added this and underline it, really has a congregation filled with believers that are God's people, identified as his slaves and messengers, committed to serving him. And then I just put a question, but can that be said of us? Does that describe your walk with Christ? Wholly committed to being God's person. And I want you to understand what I'm saying. That means you don't have an identity of your own. The Christian walk is not looking for you to be you. They're looking for you to be like your Savior. And Paul starts off from the beginning making it clear, I am God's slave. And the message I bring is the message of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel message. It is the truth. It is scripture. I'm coming with zero authority of my own. I am a slave by definition, serving only one authority, and my identity is tied to him. I am God's person. Are we wholly committed to being God's person. 
God's people, his church, must be completely and willingly his servants, committed to his role so they can maintain a laser focus on God's priority. I want to jump back to that word willing, though. Uh, Christianity is not a coerced faith. Christ doesn't manipulate us into it. It's not like many other religions that would take force to make you a disciple. You commit everything. Nothing is held back, but you can't be coerced into it. You have to give all of yourself to him. Uh, Peter talked about that, right? He dealt with the church's half commitments and talked about how we must submit completely to our Lord and Savior, that he has all the authority, but that's a commitment that's done willingly. Now, as a church, God's people have that as their identity. As they zero in, they are going to have that laser focus now on God's priority. This is the rest of verse 1 and 2. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Paul's calling, so I am a slave of God, and I am the messenger of Jesus Christ for the purpose or in the interest of saving faith so that they, believers, the church, know precisely and experientially the truth and that they live it out in godliness, centered on the hope those believers will have of eternal life. Paul recognizes that God's priority is to evangelize, edify, and encourage his church. Paul understood the priority placed on God's children for those who would believe and thus the call to evangelize. And I put here, a healthy church will prioritize outreach. Paul preached God's word so people would believe, so they would have faith. As Romans 10, 17 states, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. As Paul will write to the church in Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25 says this, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The call is to evangelize, to preach his gospel. I wrote down, unencumbered by our additions and wisdom, preached for the purpose of the faith of God's children. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 12 states this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We will, as a healthy church, prioritize outreach. That we are sent to be his light in this world. That we have a purpose to fulfill. And Paul recognized it. I'm here as a slave and as an apostle for the purpose of the saving faith of God's children. Yet God's priority doesn't end with evangelization. Paul knows that his calling is to also edify so a healthy church will prioritize outreach, but a healthy church is also focused on real spiritual growth. Paul desire, desires God's people to manifest a real, as it says, acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. This idea of acknowledging or knowledge of the truth is a clear perception of the truth. As Kenneth Woos notes, it is a precise 
experiential knowledge that connects to piety toward God. That piety, godliness is the word he uses, is the life of one who fears and serves God. The fact is, godliness and truth are inseparable. We must know his truth to live a life he desires. You will not live for the Lord as he desires without knowing his truth. But if you truly know his truth, precisely and personally, you will live in godliness. They're not able to be separated. You must know his truth to live in godliness. And when you know his truth, you will live in godliness. And Paul recognized that the priority of edification has to run through the word. As John 17, 17 states, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. One writer says this, God's truth produces godliness. The transformation wrought through saving faith is visibly manifested in holy conduct. We, in different traditions and churches, there's different statements that are made, but this is a fact. You're not saved if you don't live for him. You're not saved if you haven't submitted to him. And people say, well, we can't look at hearts. You're right. But they would, some people would say, we're fruit inspectors. What's the fruit that they're talking about? Holy conduct. You will live for your Savior. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but there is going to be an indication of godliness in our life. And notice Paul's focus. He's not just interested in evangelization, which is a priority of the church, but he's also focused in on knowledge, precise experiential knowledge of the truth, which will result in them living for Christ. The church and specifically its leadership have a divine responsibility, as Paul states in Ephesians 4, 12 through 13. What is their responsibility? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all Come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A church is focused on spiritual growth. We will never lose sight of our call in our community and our call in the church even to evangelize, to preach his gospel, but we can never lose sight of the fact that we are to be growing spiritually. A healthy church prioritizes the outreach of God's gospel, reaching his children called by him to faith. A healthy church is focused on the real spiritual growth of those children, understanding fully God's priority to see the lost saved and then growing in sanctification, all the while being sure to encourage. A healthy church is energized by their real hope of eternal life. What is supposed to be the fuel that drives us, the real hope that we have of being with God for all eternity? Paul brought biblical encouragement to God's church. He pointed them to the firm and confirmed hope found exclusively in Jesus Christ. We, the church, know the reality of eternal hope Our hope is not wishful thinking. This is not, I hope my parents buy me a car for Christmas. I'm fine with that. Make it a good one, right? (laughs) That's hope. That's wishful thinking. And my dad would attest to that right now. That's not the hope we're talking about. We don't have wishful thinking. 
eternal hope, Christ's hope, is a given. We look forward in the future to something that will take place knowing that it's already been accomplished and secured for us. It's guaranteed by God and his word. We are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. John 6, 40 promises this, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That reality of hope, the assurance of his promised life, motivates and energizes our life for him. It's not just the third E in a list of E's. And trust me, I was so happy to have three E's in a row as a preacher. It is a critical component to what Paul is saying. You have to have this encouragement. It has to be the energy and the motivation of our life. We're motivated, and I'm just going to give a couple to holiness. As 1 John 3, 2-3 says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. What drives us to holiness? Hope. What Christ has given us, what we know is ours in Christ, we're energized uh, to service. We're motivated to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And through his hope, we are capable of endurance. And again, I'm just giving a couple things that, that the hope of eternal life is supposed to do to us. This is not just some caveat last little thing we have tucked in our pocket. Well, get out of jail free card. And we, we make a mistake by presenting it that way. Well, I won't go to hell because I know Jesus is my Savior. We, we present that hope in such a trivial way. This hope changes everything about life. It is supposed to be the fuel on which your life is driven. And so in the end, you're going to be capable of endurance, as Romans 8.18 says, for I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Hope of eternal life, that unique God-only hope energizes this walk. Paul knows that the priority of God is his gospel message, his salvation, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. I even said it last message. It's one of the, the, the beautiful things about our salvation. God's commitment to redeem his creation began before he created us. He is not surprised by sin. He doesn't condone sin. He's not the author of sin, but he has not been duped by sin, surprised by sin, shocked by it at all. Instead, before we were ever created, he knew that he would need to redeem us, and he decided and chose to do so. His love drove that. So his eternal plan of redemption must be fixed in the mind of his church, his healthy church, and be a constant motivation for evangelization, edification, and encouragement. And so I have a couple questions for us. Are we mo motivated, though, to accomplish God's priority? Does that say forefront in our minds? And, and I want you to recognize this because we oftentimes move over the greetings we see in a letter. Do you hopefully feel the weight of what Paul is doing as he starts talking to Titus about what a healthy church is going to look like? And we're going to get into the details. He leads with God's priority. Are we focused on evangelizing, edifying, and encouraging in him and his gospel message? 
That's what we carry. That's the light we share. This is our focus as we branch out and look out into our community. And with that focus on God's priority comes a commitment to following God's process. Verse 3, but hath in due time, speaking of his redemptive plan, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And God's process is preaching. I'm reading through a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite uh, guys. Uh, it's always, you can always make a dead guy your favorite because he can't mess up anymore. So, and he has a book on preaching. And it's, it's amazing because in his era, uh, and this is going through World War I, World War II, there was a huge pressure to, to get rid of preaching. And so he is the, 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 the guy that took the force of it, right? Stood up and would have been the, the one that talked about preaching and biblical preaching and why it was important. Even though people were trying to put radio and TV and discussion groups and debates, he is the guy that stood, when I say firm, and talked about that. And so as you look in, in Titus and you realize it's very clear, this is what God's process is. And so no matter what culture says, this is what God wants. It's through preaching. We're to preach his word, systematically, thoroughly explaining the meaning of it. The word translated preaching in Greek referenced the public proclamation of the message a herald was to give, and this is critical, on behalf of a ruler or town council to whom he served. And I'm saying this for a reason. Too much preaching has nothing to do with heralding what your boss, what your owner what your master told you to say. We're to preach his word, not our message, not our topics, not our clever life lessons, not our perspectives. And I'll make it personal. I'm not supposed to give you my message, my topic, my life lessons, or my perspective. They're not worth anything. But we're called to the biblical process of preaching. What we're to do is preach expository messages and I know that's a big seminary term. Let me break it down. It means verse by verse, interpreting, explaining, and applying God's word clearly and completely. We are not preaching our topics, but fully and systematically teaching his. I'm never going to launch into a random series going through current events that I may write on current events that we won't work to post them online so you can read and, and see that is there. But when we stand in the pulpit, we're going to be walking through God's word and his word is going to be what we need for that time and for that day. I don't need to wonder about where we should be. We're in God's word and we're going to walk through it systematically. Jesus said it was through the preaching of Jonah that Nineveh repented, Matthew 12, 41. Paul was strengthened by the Lord so that he could fully accomplish the proclamation, preaching, and that all the Gentiles could hear, 2 Timothy 4, 17. The Corinthian church was reminded that God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Christ's ministry began with preaching, Matthew 4, 17. After Pentecost, the apostles kept teaching and preaching as they were instructed. Acts 5.42, Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. 
Without biblical preaching, the church will languish. It will be malnourished, a reality that we can sadly see in churches without true biblical preaching. I'm going to quote Walter Kaiser. He says this, It's no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed junk food. My perspective is junk food. Theron's perspective is junk food. Any of your perspectives are junk food. You need God's perspective. The church, a healthy church, is going to be preaching God's word. It's going to be there. He goes on all kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted her. Speaking of the church. A healthy church is committed to the preaching of God's word. A healthy church grows under, and I highlighted this, and demands that biblical process. That calling from Paul to the process that God has laid out is on both my shoulders, Theron's shoulders, and our leader's shoulders, but it's on your shoulders as well. You are to demand biblical preaching. A healthy church will not settle for less than real, expository, verse-by-verse preaching, no matter how charismatic, engaging, interesting the one is who might be giving their own message. We talked a while back on false teachers, and we said it doesn't matter how sharp they are, no matter how engaging they are, no matter how emotional they are, no matter how well they move you through things, how good you feel or bad you feel at the end of it. Why are they false teachers? Because they give their own message whatever it may be. I don't have to delve into what the lie is. We know what the truth is. And anything except this truth is a lie. It doesn't matter how good they may be. Paul was committed to biblical preaching because that was the process set forth by his Lord and Savior. I give an illustration from India. Uh, I mentioned this before. Cody and I were there, and he can attest to this as well. Uh, Joy Palmer, we're working with Joy. He's one of the teachers at the seminary, at the school. He lives in Bangalore. Uh, economics are, not, are such that he has not been able to take his children back to where he's from, which is Manipur, but he's burdened for Manipur. And it's a region that Cody and I are not going to be able to go to if someone else is braver than us. By all means, fly over there, but you're not going to be supported by the U.S. government, even if you were supported by the U.S. government in there. I don't know. But either way, they say don't go there. And he came to me and he said a statement, and this is the one statement that I knew right away that we should work through him. We should be helping him. He says, Kenny, if you go and preach in their churches there and and you preach like we're supposed to preach, Verse by verse expository, he says, the people are bored because they are accustomed to a diet that's wrong. And when he said that, I thought, well, we should send you to teach there. And then he said something, but we should get the pastors of these churches. And in Manipur, it's very hard to plant a church because they got a very Christian background. And it's interesting as you walk into a country with a history that's a lot deeper than ours is. So you realize it goes back hundreds of years and they're locked down. He says, but I'm from Manipur and I can, at this time he was pitching me to go there. I can get you in and there'll be pastors. He says, now they don't preach the gospel and they don't preach the Bible, but if we can teach them, reach them, 
that they'll start preaching God's word in their churches, and those churches will grow. And to which Cody and I both said, let's teach you to do this. What do you need from us? And so actually, uh, I'd just been in contact with him, what I find amazing. He's already read through one of the books we left. He's working through the next one. And so we're, as a church, going to dive in. Uh, I hope you'll be able to meet him maybe in a Zoom call one time. But we're going to help train him and, and buy the tickets to get him over there. But he has a passion to reach him because he knows They're dead churches because they don't preach God's word as God intended it to be preached. And so we understand the fervor, and and you bump into somebody in another country in in a completely different economic circumstance than, than we're in, and you realize that they understand what it takes to be a healthy church, and they're willing to walk into what will be a difficult seminar I got to teach to everyone that's like, whoo, this is great. We love it. He's walking into a group of guys who are going to say, are you sure this is what we should do? And he's going to have to teach them the word over and over again because a healthy church is committed to the preaching of God's word and they will demand it from their church. Do we share, though, and duplicate Paul's fervor? Would we even duplicate Joy's fervor? as he's willing to walk into what would be kind of a hostile environment in that sense, to let them know that a healthy church is going to have God's process foremost in their mind. Paul now closes his greeting with a connection to Titus. You don't want to miss this. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. And that's a word common that that Peter used in 2 Peter. It's a one faith, the only faith. He's not making it lower. He's making it, there is one faith to be connected to. And he shares with him. He says, this is my son of the faith, the faith that they shared, the one and only faith, the faith that was commonly held by true believers. In other words, this is the only faith that a believer could hold, the faith we have today. When you see that word common faith, he's referring to a biblical faith. He's referring to, to our faith. And he then Paul connects to Timothy based on what we have in Jesus Christ, and then he extends God's unmerited grace, unexplainable mercy, and his amazing, uncopyable peace found in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, he emphasizes something to them. He says, look, this is... God's grace, God's mercy, and it's God's peace. And we talked about God's peace. That's peace with God. That's something the world can't duplicate. They can fabricate it with drugs and with with philosophy and with twists and turns and maybe entertainment and materialism. They try to give you a peace that's not real. But he's saying you're talking about a real grace, real mercy, and real uncopyable peace. And so as Paul begins his letter to Titus, the, the the son in the faith that he left in Crete to establish healthy churches, he gives some needed characteristics of individuals that would be in a healthy church. A healthy church is filled with those who identify as God's people. We are to find our full identity in him and see our complete earthly existence and I use that word on purpose, our complete earthly existence in light of that reality and not the one we've created for ourselves. That's tough when you've accomplished things, right? It's tough when you haven't accomplished things. We love to identify in ourselves. Our culture tells you, find your identity, be you. (coughs) The Bible says, don't be you, because you're wicked and you're vile, and you need to be like Christ. And Paul shares, be God's people. 
Find your identity in him. We are his slaves and messengers, constantly carrying his gospel truth. We're to be fixed and motivated by God's priority. We are driven to evangelize, edify, and encourage because of his eternal plan of redemption for us. A hope that is secure and for which we, as his healthy church, commit the everything of this life. We are driven by the real hope of being at peace with God and living with him for all eternity through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And we understand that we do the work by God's process. The preaching of his word is paramount to our lives. We know that he works his will through his process, and we will not compromise in the least. As a healthy church, we will settle for nothing less. A healthy church is made up of healthy Christians. Those that emulate Paul, as he's shown us here in his greeting, determined to be identified as his people, fixated on his priority, and unwavering from his process. Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to dive into your word. We've had a wonderful opportunity in, in, in our community and around the world, and we're so grateful for, for what you allow us to do as a church and, and be influential in, in countries in Central America and India uh, and, and touches in areas like Belarus and other places, uh, England. Uh, we're grateful for what you've given us and the opportunity you've opened for us. Uh, we want to be focused on what you want us focused on. Help us to be your people, not in name only, but in reality, identified in you as your slaves and as your messengers. Not striving for our own agenda, but instead striving to elevate yours, recognizing that as believers, we are left here to be your ambassadors. And that the, everything we have in life is to be used for your glory and for your kingdom. And that that becomes our driving force. Help us to be fixed on your priority. Understanding that your eternal hope is the fuel that is to drive our life from which we are able to exist as your children here and help us to be focused on your process. Even when the world thinks otherwise, sometimes even when we think otherwise, when we're swayed from what we should be doing because something else seems so gleaming and nice, seems so comforting, seems so exciting, help us to always come back and understand that it's your process and that we will preach your message, unpolluted by our charisma, unpolluted by our ideas, unpolluted by our life lessons, but instead driven to go to your word, understand your word, and to take that and make sure it applies uh, to the everything of our life. Give us the determination, Lord, as City Light, to be a healthy church, that we will prioritize uh, outreach we recognize the responsibility to reach your children here in Culpeper Orange, Madison. We recognize the responsibility to reach around the world. Help us to recognize again the need to grow and that spiritual growth is something that we will uh, seek and demand. Help us again uh, to be encouraged by the truth of your grace, your mercy, and your peace. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.